I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Thank you all for coming. Um, it's a great pleasure to introduce Will Self and Patrick Keeler. Uh, we're celebrating the publication of two books, really. Uh, one of them is the Society of Spectacle. It's a republication with an introduction by Will. Um, and that will certainly form the basis of the first part of the discussion. Um, but we're also celebrating the publication of Patrick's collection of essays, The View from the Train, so I hope we'll get a chance to talk a bit about that too. Um, there is a connection. It's not an entirely uh, arbitrary link. There are, although no references to the Society of the Spectacle in the book, there are uh, situationist ideas aplenty. Um, but we're going to begin with uh, a short, extemporized uh, statement, comment from both Will and Patrick, and then uh, Will, <coughs> I'll ask some questions. We'll have a broader discussion before opening it out to the floor. Will, you have yeah, to um, it's phenomenally uncomfortable, this thing. I mean, this bookshop, which in other ways is exemplary, sucks when it comes to seating. I mean, I'm, I've got a bad back. And also, if I can continue in this vein... Uh, it places us in the invidious position of... of selling you something from behind the counter. That's why I said celebrate rather than... Uh, celebrate. <laughs> we are decelebrated. You know, is it, is it um, Benjamin who says that the flaneur only forms sexual relationships with prostitutes because they are both seller and product in one? Uh, and... Uh, you know, as a flaneur, I'm now in the position of being a prostitute, which really sort of takes the whole thing full circle. Uh, so that's what I have to say. And we were sitting downstairs um, speculating on who you might be, uh, and we were wondering whether you would either be old situs who had come along in order to riot in some way... <laughs> possibly break into the London Review cake shop and <laughs> make free with their polenta cake, uh, or, or whether you'd be kind of young dickhead hipsters from Shoreditch, uh, 
or, or maybe sort of some sort of disturbing chimera joined out of these two species. Um, and I suppose that that says as much as one can about uh, Debord and the Society of the Spectacle. It, it seems to me that, that uh, again, looking at the text, it's endlessly refreshing. Uh, and one of the things that it, it, I think for people who come to it fresh or come to it again, one of the things that it, I'm always struck by is Debord's reverence for dialectics, really, that the, the, the text is conceived of uh, as endlessly pivoting and revolving uh, around dialectical oppositions and discussing it risks becoming the same sort of self-cancelling exercise as the spectacle itself uh, and discussing it risks in any context which is why I commented on the seating uh, placing one in in an invidious position. You know, we can treat of it, if we like, as uh, an academic object of inquiry that is in some way removed from the world we're in, or we can treat of it as a call to arms, in which case, what the fuck are we doing sitting here? You know, so it, it, it asks of that. It's a text that, that, that you can, cannot approach without feeling some sort of sense of urgency. I mean, it's Im important to remember that it was composed uh, absolutely around the time of Les Evénements uh, in Paris, so it was conceived in an atmosphere, in a revolutionary moment, uh, in a belief uh, in the possibility of revolution, and, and therefore to discuss it in our society is perhaps to try and examine what's happened in the intervening period uh, and to what extent we can say Debord predicted what the particular evolutions of the spectacle have been uh, over the last 46 years now uh, and I suppose some of the things that one is most interested in and, and leap off the page for us in 2014 uh, the extent to which Debord either anticipates uh, the shape of a society dominated by bi-directional digital media or doesn't get that, uh, and to what extent that kind of uh, evolution in technology is implicit in what he says in the society of the spectacle or not. So that's some of the stuff that, that interests me. Uh, and to what extent the spectacle itself has, of course, been subsumed to its own commodification. You know, here it is. It's a nice little book that you can buy. Uh, actually, don't buy it. You can download it for nothing <laughs> off the web. So why waste your money? Um, uh, or whether we can still regard it as uh, an inspiring call and a critique uh, or whether it, it, it is self-cancelling within its own dialectical terms, in other words it's become a victim of its own dialectic in that way, so I suppose those are some of the things I think, I mean Debord says in the Society of the Spectacle that the spectacle is the sun that never sets 
over the empire of passivity. Uh, and looking out at our own terribly constipated political culture at the moment, it's very, very difficult not to believe that he was absolutely right about that and that the spectacle has now infiltrated us all uh, so completely, rather like kind of dry ice, freezing coffee, that we've all kind of crinkled up into a posture of, uh, uh, of, of subjugation to the, to the spectacle in that way. So I suppose those are my opening remarks. People often say I'm rather pessimistic, but I don't feel that. Thanks, Will. Uh, Patrick? Um, I wanted to, to make some pretty obvious observations um, and ask a couple of questions. Um, the first one is that um, it was the book was published or, or written. Do we know when it was written? 67. It was published in 67. I don't know how long it took him to write it. It took him not long. Um, <laughs> which was 50 years after 1917 and almost 50 years ago. Um, which seems like a long time. Um, um, well, it is quite a long time, um, especially when you compare the two intervals. Although, of course, the 50 years from 19, mid-60s till now doesn't seem anything like as long as the 50 years from 1970 to 1967. At least it doesn't to me, anyway. I don't know. Um, the other thing was to say, is it about the West? Um, uh, he seems to say that in the book. Um, it seems to be about Western economies and, well, not, not only, sorry, not only the Is it about developed economies? I don't mean <coughs> the West. I mean the West and um, the former Soviet bloc. Well, it's not it's quite clear whether it's about China, is it? He hedges his bets. I mean, in his... Uh, commentary on the Society of the Spectacle I think published in 85 or 6 he speaks specifically about the Soviet bloc yes. uh, and he speaks about it being in an evolutionary condition that will carry it into uh, will essentially harmonise it with the spectacle in the West yes. so he gets well, that. but even in the Sock of Spec in the 67 text he, he does speak about well, he speaks about a globalised economy. He, he yes. already speaks about the spectacle as having achieved total world coverage. I mean, I think that's significant. And he, he speaks about a global economy. Yes. Um, but it's never quite clear to me whether he's talking about a global economy of production and consumption or a global economy of finance, because he doesn't, he doesn't really mention finance very much specifically, does he? He does mention finance, actually. I mean, what he, what he speaks about, I mean, if we want to get dig right down into what he owes to Marxian political economy, what he talks about specifically is that commodity fetishism supervenes the notion of a finance economy. Yes. And, and that might seem like a tricky concept for us to grasp in... Uh, an economy that seems to be dominated by financial services. But actually, I think Debord nails that because what he understands is that the logical evolution of commodity fetishism is that money itself becomes a commodity. In other words, he has an anthropological perspective on it. One remembers Mary Douglas's 
remarks in Purity in Danger that money is only an extreme and specialised form of ritual. Well, that would be true for a traditional society, but I think the point that Debord makes is that uh, once you abstract use value, the commodity from uh, exchange value from use value, then anything can become part of that, and money itself has become commodified. So he does, I think, in society's spec the spectacle, correctly anticipate the shape that finance capitalism has in the contemporary world, which is a, as a, a highly evolved form of commodity fetishism. So that told you, Patrick. Mm. Um, yeah, did, yeah. And we can open this up uh, later. I was, this I was going on to say that um, or I was think it's a bit soon, actually. Maybe I should talk about something else. Um, I was going to say... Um, I was go the other question, or another question, was was why do why do we um, continue to, in as much as we do, revere the book? Um, and I couldn't help thinking that it's be partly because of its form, um, which is sort of by the way, really. But, um, I think yeah, it's not by the way at all. I mean, maybe we should um, maybe we should talk about the form. But, but, but before we do that, um, okay. I'll just <laughs> come back to the thing that I nearly said before I said that, which was that there was there's a, a report published this, just this week. I noticed um, by the ILO about new jobs in um, I don't know what to call them really emerging economies or, or um, developing economies and um, it pointed out that a surprisingly large proportion of these jobs are in the service sector and this seemed to me to be, that's why I was wondering whether it was about developed economies mm. <laughs> when I said the West I didn't mean the West, I meant the West and, Well he um, nails that too I mean he absolutely says that, that the logical transition from a manufacturing economy is into a service economy and again the, the spectacle because the spectacle is the totality of human relations expressed through the totalizing capability of the commodity uh, demands service economy. But this seems yeah. to now to be general. Yes. Um, in a way that it possibly wasn't then. Well De Board's argument would be that the because of the nature of the spectacle, in other words, it, it because you know, as, as, as Burroughs said of heroin, you know, it's the only product to which you sell people. Um, <coughs> I think that that's the Debordian view of the spectacle. The spectacle is something to which people are sold, and the spectacle demands that people keep working. But because, as Debord saw it, mechanization would allow for an uh, evolved economy to actually have leisure time, and leisure time is impermissible within the context of the spectacle, the service sector grows and grows and grows to absorb That's all of this. indeed, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. This, uh, this yes. So, so in, I yes. mean, the, the service sector logically should become more and more baroque. I mean, people, you know, you're not just going to have telephone hygienists, you're going to have people who are kind of waxing telephone hygienists <laughs> while there's a consultant standing at their elbow. And actually, Zizek, who mostly is a buffoon, uh, actually nailed this in a piece he wrote for the London Review in which he, I think he was reviewing somebody else actually, that most jobs and, and I, I certainly can speak for my own and probably a lot of the people in this room uh, aren't really work at all anymore in any meaningful sense. No, and haven't been for years. No. 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 I mean we could quite reasonably do fuck all and they're not... <laughs> Um, Patrick, were there more questions uh, you wanted to raise? Surprisingly few people do. 
Right, exactly. Exactly. But that, that's Despite why what one is led to believe. Yeah. That. Yeah, I mean, but I'm not in the business of leading people to believe anything. I mean, no. I, I think that that's absolutely right. Mm. You know, and if, if Which seems to get to the, to the sort of... Um, Centre of it, really, doesn't Absolutely. The centre of this. To the nub. Well, except he doesn't say that very often. He does say about non-work, but I think he... But, I, yeah, I mean, it's partly Le, Paul Lafargue, isn't it, who's behind this, along with Marx, there's Paul Lafargue and the, the, the right to be lazy. Mm. Um, so this revolutionary affirmation of refusing work. He seems to be... In, he's quite hard-working with all his... Yeah, he you know, is. With all his dialectic. He is. No, they... Um, it's, it's prodigious. Uh, they talked through the night. Yes. Every night. But don't you think, Matthew, because you're um, more au okay with this sort of thing than anybody. Uh, I don't know about anybody. You know, looking at the text, I mean, it's difficult, I think, for contemporary readers and perhaps the younger people in the room to understand quite or feel <coughs> quite the fervour with which somebody like Debord grasps dialectics, that he's writing within a, a, a living Marxist tradition in that way that is still perceived as being highly viable. Uh, and we're not in the same kind of uh, intellectual culture anymore. So, you know, you look at the situationist relationship to the Surrealists, to Breton, uh, to Henri Lefebvre, uh, and to Hegel, uh, and to this idea among French Marxists uh, in the early part of the 20th century of, of resurrecting and sort of disinterring uh, revolutionary Marxism within Hegel, revivifying it. And you think of sections in the Society of the Spectacle. I mean, one of the, one of the most telling things, I think, that, that de Bord says in the Society of the Spectacle is that the spectacle is a religious phenomenon. It's a spiritual phenomenon. And it has to be understood as uh, a... You know, uh, uh, a shift in the modality of spirituality, uh, and that's possibly the best way of understanding it. And, and, and again, I think that 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 kind of thinking is quite elusive to people who don't feel Marxism and feel it. Uh, uh, and I, I think the parts of, of, of society, the spectacle that that read um, that one almost can't read anymore, are of course the sections that that. Uh, speak of workers' councils or speak of the revolutionary proletariat. Uh, well, it was pretty difficult in the 70s when I read it. Was it? But that, I mean, the, yeah. it is the longest chapter of the book is mm. the proletariat as, sub, as subject oh, that's and, different. Yeah. and representation. No, that's different. But, but that's, I mean, I think Will's right. That it's that's kind of history. Well, it's not just history because he then does it's at the end. Of the book, he does it? at the end then go on and talk about proletariat as a revolutionary. He does at the very end. Potentially yeah. revolutionary force yeah. and he talks about the Hannah Kirk and, the, and the workers' councils, yeah. yeah. But he, um, he also says, actually, uh, I wanted to say this earlier, he also says before he starts, before he, he finishes, the last 221 mentions the council with a capital C. 220 ends, conversely, the critique which goes beyond the spectacle must know how to wait. Mm. But, I mean, Which is probably what, well, maybe what he did. I don't know. Did he wait? Did he wait? Or what, what we're doing? Are we waiting? I mean, the, it, one way of thinking about waiting in relation to this would be in terms of the gap between the Society of the Spectacle and the comments of the Society of the Spectacle. So, 20 years, I think it was 88, the comments of the Society of the Spectacle, where there's, yes. a, there's a notable shift in terms of his political position and a loss of, of optimism. And that moment uh, that you've described this is being embedded in and coming out of and that live tradition 
um, which in, in, entails looking all the way back to Feuerbach um, and Hegel, not, not just Marx. In here. I think there's a certain amount, um, yes, but by the time amount, you get to the yeah. comments, it's it's much more pessimistic. Mm. Um, the proletariat isn't the subject of no. history, as he continued to believe um, after Lukash, I think, in And there's 67. no collapse in either of them. And what he talks about, I think, in the co- in the comments is, he, he, for example, reading. He talks about how how reading is a strategy for undoing the spectacle. Mm. If we become very good readers, cl- as it were, close readers, um, if we if we can pull apart and analyse, um, then then we can undo the the, the spectacle, um, which is a considerable retreat in a way. I mean, it becomes an intellectual rather than a, a political <coughs> labour. I think by the late 80s. I, my personal feeling is that for Debord, the actual idea of working class solidarity, uh, workers' councils and the proletarian revolution was a bit of... was. I, I think the revolution he hoped for in 68 was essentially going to be... Uh, Triggered and to take on the character of the Situationists. Uh, and I think he saw, like a lot of uh, apocalyptic and utopian Marxists, he believed that the revolutionary moment would automatically dissolve uh, the condition of the proletariat as then constituted. And I think a lot of the ludic ideas of the Situationists were an anticipation of a future communist world that remained highly inchoate and I think that you know what you don't see in the situationists as against other Marxist movements is any real attempt within the construction of the movement itself to you know display the form of a future communist society so you know they didn't spend a great deal of time building a working class base I mean they had a few kind of Parisian thugs who got pissed with them I mean that really does not constitute a mass working class movement and I think Debord always saw himself in his later years in which he became uh, you know a war games obsessive who sat around in a farmhouse in the French countryside watching other people having sex and getting pissed uh, and flirting with uh, extreme left wing terrorists of the period uh, you know are you know it's tempting if you romanticize it to view 68 as, as a kind of 18 Brumaire and, the, and then you know where does the movement reconstitute but I don't actually think that's true to who Debord was I think Debord uh, was a rhetorician he was a writer, he was a romantic but, but his, that's what, what's difficult I think for us to grasp is that somebody like him, again an autodidact as well, unusually for French theorist of that kind, not within the system, not coming out of any of the école, is quite how steeped he remained in Marxism, that Marxism uh, was where he found himself. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, maybe we should say something about, I don't want to sort of spoil spoil it, but spoil the atmosphere, but try, try to define what the spectacle is, because it's by no means a... Um, I mean, I don't. Perhaps everyone feels very confident about what it is. I, I don't, having you know read it many times, and um, so it might be worth thinking, perhaps with a view to a later discussion about whether it's a concept that can incorporate notions of financialization, digitization, etc. What 
what it is in the society of the spectacle. As I say, I mean, it's partly the strength of his dialectical thinking that makes it a rather slippery concept and, and quite an elusive one. At one point, there's a very bizarre moment where he talks, he, he precisely dates the origin of the spectacle. I think that's in the comments. In the oh, is it in the comments? Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah, that's right. It's in the comments. 1927. He says it's 40 mm-hmm. years now. Now, it's in 67. He, he dates it to 40 years before the, the publication of the writing of the, the Society of the Spectacle, which brings you to 1927. But there's no explanation for why 1927 marks the origin of the spectacle. Um, I Googled 1927 in a desperate attempt to work this out uh, sure before I came. I'm sure he would have I'm sure he would have done. Um, it was the, the, the only sort of salient things I could find were the first uh, telephone call, uh, transatlantic telephone call was made, I think. The first TV image, which was of Herbert Hoover, was transmitted. Um, Metropolis uh, was uh, came out in the cinemas, and so did the first talkie, proper talkie, the jazz singer. Um, but apart from those four, I couldn't work out why on earth this might have been a signal, the, the sort of primal moment. Um, but it's, and it's true to say that the concept doesn't have a history as he constitutes it. He doesn't really explain where, doesn't explain where it comes from, uh, and he doesn't offer a very clear definition of it. But do you think we should be trying to it define to it? With Stalin. What do you mean that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Did Stalin um, do something? Oh, oh in twenty-seven. Well, Tro- I think Trotsky was um, expelled in twenty-seven, wasn't he? Um, so it's possible that's significant. Um, it, Stalin's in, term- in the mix. Thought. I mean, he, he says in the Society of Spectacle he he skirts around Stalin's line that you know quantity is is its own kind of quality. In fact, he seems to be riffing off of that. And, and in as much as there's something evanescent about the spectacle, it's quite clearly the point at which quantity becomes quality in some way, that the qualitative change sheerly by the accretion. I mean, I think what, what the spectacle is is the point at which uh, commodification uh, as a process uh, detaches from... Uh, it, it is this relationship between exchange and use value of, of commodities and it is a, a, a point at which the kind of world of commodification if you like to call it that uh, supervenes what we might think of as the traditional western logos where it kind of replaces it in that way it bodies forth uh, and so that there are many different things that go into that phenomenon but they're it might be arbitrary to say it happens in 1927, but clearly it does happen at some point in the early 20th century. I think he's right about that. Uh, and I think that, you know, he's quite clear that the spectacle is not media as conceived. So all of the things that you pick on, on 1927 are spectacular epiphenomena. But for Debord, the spectacle isn't simply mediatization. Mediatization is simply one of the ways in which it manifests itself. Uh, it's one of its favourite methods because he's quite a, he's at pains to stress the idea of viewing and the gaze as being integral and that the spectacle is highly visual in that way. And the reason why it's highly visual is because of the passivity of those of us who live within <coughs> spectacular societies. So we, we become voyeurs in that way. And actually, uh, Andrew Hussey, his biographer, said it was one of the great paradigm ironies of Debord's life that he ended up a voyeur himself, of course. 
Uh, you didn't need to know that, but I thought you might like to. Um, so I, th I think we kind of, I think the reason why, you know, elsewhere in the Society of Spectacles, the board says that, you know, the spectacle is a map that completely covers its territory. And I, I think if we wanted to nudge towards Patrick's collection of essays, we could talk about how uh, I think de Bord, uh is writing a Marxist theory for a post-Einsteinian age. Uh, and that's what is confusing about the way that dialectics operate in the society of the spectacle, because they're not, they're operating uh, within uh, a post-Marxian world, really, in which they, you cannot see the operation of a dialectical process being viewed purely temporally, but, but must view it as being spatio-temporal at the same time. Uh, and, and that's, I think, what uh, makes the spectacle a kind of slippery concept, uh, and I think once the spectacle has achieved total coverage, uh, which I think it has, uh, important things start to happen to history. Uh, history, in a sense, ceases to happen in the way in which it was previously understood to happen. Uh, and where I think Patrick's collection of essays march with the Society of Spectacle is that what Patrick is concerned about uh, in a lot of his work and... and uh, his film is the same uh, post-Einsteinian uh, situation in which uh, we can no longer consider space and time as being independent in any way. Uh, and although you don't quote uh, Debord in in your essays, you quote Lefebvre quite a lot. Uh, almost everybody else. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's a touchstone for you. And and Lefebvre, of course, a profound influence on on. Debord and the Situationists also understood that. Idea. Yes. Um, I mean, the, the, just looking in the book um, to remind myself, the, the key thing about the spectacle seems to be that it's autonomous. Mm. But it, it's not autonomous because it exists by, by being regarded. Uh, so that's one of its problems for us. Well, yes. Yes, but I mean, that's what he says. Mm. For him, it's a, it, it, the autonomous movement of the non-living, the instrument of unification, which is kind of... Is that, is that, will that do for you? Well, that's, what definition. Is, anyway, that's what I think it is. Um, the instrument of unification. Yes, it's an auto, it's, on the one hand, it's autonomous, mm. and on the other hand, it's an instrument of unification. So it's mm. like a sort well, of... It, it, it's very, a thing. But in, in that sense, it's only like commodification. It's... I what? mean, in many ways, it is just a reinscription of of Lukash on uh, on uh, on reification, um, and it's about it's about reified relations, which both isolate and uh, flatten and uh, and universalize. The, the other um, thinker who I I see in the society of the spectacle, um, though he probably would regard him as anathema, is McLuhan, and a lot of his discussion about you know, what the spectacle is and how the spectacle operates evokes to me McLuhan in understanding media and the idea of holding and letting go at a distance and the idea of power developing an autonomous position because of its very character that power takes up, power can, cannot be exercised and it's a very primary thing it's as simple as picking up this bottle and putting it down again and once you 
have a technological and, and uh, relationship with the bottle of water, the bottle of water becomes a commodity, then it achieves this autonomy that Patrick talks about, and, and maybe Lukács, I haven't read Lukács for so long, I can't remember, uh, talks about as well. Uh, but it always exists in a relationship to our passivity. You know, we, it depends on us being passive, uh, and, and, and it, is, it demands of us increasing passivity as it achieves its total field coverage in that way. I mean, I think, yeah, one of the things it's trying to do is, is provide a theory that encompasses both the commodity and commodity relations and power. So it's, as it were, somewhere between Marx and Foucault. Foucault was dismissive of the Society of the Spectacle and said, you know, it's not about spectacle, it's about surveillance. Um, but there's a sense, I think, in which de Boer is trying to think about something that's both completely decentralised, which is commodity relations and how they're manifest in a different historical situation to the one that Marx and Lukács talked about, and power insofar as it's embodied in a state that does employ tactics of surveillance and, uh, and policing, like the ones that Foucault um, Historicized and, and, and critiqued. Yes, I mean, I think that, I mean, De Bord got very, when you go and move on to the comments, uh, De Bord is very good on, on terrorism, on the necessity of liberal democracies to have, to pick their enemies and, and to, to big up terrorism as a phenomenon. You see it every day now. But I think De Bord felt that, that I, certainly what I get from the society spectacle is that the exercise of state power, qua state power, is or even the exercise of corporate power, uh, is the spectacle's bigger than that. You know, the, the, the spectacle is way bigger than that. And these, these, these are merely just like, you know, uh, the unified field of media or, or the web. I mean, interesting, interesting remarks on media in the society of spectacle. He doesn't really anticipate the web. I mean, he, I'd be interested to see what people think he might have thought about the web. I mean, he talks very clearly uh, about media specifically as being unitary uh, and as being one-directional. So, uh, you know, I think that the 1927 thing, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he wasn't riffing off the talkie and the telephone call. You know, these are, these are medias that, that would have conformed to his paradigm. And, and I, I should imagine that contemporary people now would as people do would say things like oh well but you know uh, you know the, the Arab Spring was energised by the web or look at flash mobs or you know would, would view the web as in some way running against the idea of the spectacle and its mediatised incarnation I'm not so sure that's true I think the spectacle's cleverer than we are We should probably begin to wrap up so that the um, mm. audience can start to um, ask questions or, or make interventions. But do you think we should... You mentioned, Patrick, form, the form. Do you want to say just something briefly? We could have a very brief discussion about well, the form of the uh, only three thesis. things, yes. The first one is that it's, um, it's short. It's um, not that short, actually. It's pretty short. Some of them are... Some of the, it gets longer and longer. I mean, the, the, the theses no, the theses start off very punchy and punctual, no, it, and then and then they get and rather he get rambling by the I end. Think I think he got drunk. <laughs> the end of it. It's, no, it, 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 
Cut, it's like a, um, it, they get short at the end. Yeah. But he, the book he, is short. He I races. Mean, he races to the end. It's short and it fits in your pocket. This one even better than the other one, and um, it's catchy. Um, and um, I had a couple of examples of it being catchy. Two hundred and six. Not not ones you can remember, of course, because uh, they're not that catchy. They're pretty catchy, but I have to get it right. Um, the um, misery of philosophy. Sorry. Two hundred. Oh, it's in my notes. Two hundred and six. Yes. Um, drawing the misery of philosophy out of the philosophy of misery. You know, that's all right. And um, 173, the one that, I mean, when I read it, which was in the, probably about 1978, um, I was most interested in Chapter 7 because that's the organization of territory, and I was in the territory mm. business. Um, and he's, he refers to something which abstractly organizes territory into territory of abstraction, and I thought, well, that's very neat. Well, he's very, Those, he's, these, and there are lots. There's lots of that. There's an awful lot of that. He's, uh, he's very good on. I mean, interesting. The only uh, urban thinker he quotes is Lewis Mumford, who you would have yes. thought was an absolute anathema to him. But apparently, not you really liked Mumford. No, no, not, I don't think. I've, I mean, I haven't read Mumford for years, and I never read very much of it. But I can see that working. Uh, yeah, as you, we well, said downstairs, there wasn't. There weren't really. I mean, it was either that probably or Jane Jacobs. Well, I don't even. Well, no, I suppose Jane probably had never heard of Jane Jacobs. Yeah, I don't know whether she's translated into French no, by 1967. Indeed. I somewhat um, doubt it. Uh, but certainly Mumford's History of the City was. And but Du Bois yes. very good on the sort of shit of, that we live in now. I mean, he's very good on the. You know, he says at one point in the Society of the Spectacle that the spectacle demands the creation. Uh, the dissolution of the city and, it, and it's sort of parceling off well, and it's kind of unspaces. Yes, but that actually is where something's happened since <coughs> that whole... The, another reason I was going to mention Chapter 7 is that actually that's all different now. And um, uh, he talks about... When he talks about urbanism, he doesn't mean what people in the UK probably think of as urbanism. He means, um, I think, the kind of thing that's in two or three... Th that Goddard is, is photographing two or three things I know about her. He means the, the new urbanism of the suburbs. Right, of, uh, but he says... Which we would, we would recognise perhaps at the Elephant and Castle, which is currently being demolished. Well, he says that the, the dictatorship of the automobile pilot product of the first phase of commodity abundance has been stamped into the environment within the domination of the freeway, which dislocates old urban centres, requires ever larger dispersion. Um, and here it gets it. This is very you, Patrick. I mean, this is... <laughs> This is very like your essay, uh, port, port Statistics. He says, at the same time, stages of incomplete reorganisation of the urban fabric polarised temporarily around distribution factories. Yes, yes, but Enormous shopping centres built on the bare ground of parking lots. And these temples of frenzied consumption, after bringing about a partial rearrangement of congestion, themselves flee within the centrifugal movement which rejects them as soon as they in turn become overburdened secondary centres. Indeed, yes, and that, yeah. that's very um, of the time and, and one can't help remembering that, that um, you know, French um, hypermarkets were 
at least a decade ahead of anything here. Mm. But, but on the other hand, since since the mid seventies, um, the city has been um, re recuperated for the spectacle, mm. and in fact, is you know now we have um, uh, all these lovely museums and. Uh, mm. Condominiums of urban living and everything, which is 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 very much not what he's talking about in his chapter. Right, seven. but I don't think you would be stretching the point. Uh, and to go on, to, which is to do with what's in my book, um, this whole uh, revival um, of uh, um, urbanism in the sense that we would understand it, perhaps in London now, is very much informed, not perhaps by but by um, the various practices of situationism. Mm. Uh, I mean, this is possibly what if this people sometimes ask me what this book is about, and I can never remember. But it's possibly about that, because so many of these essays are about the uh, the um, uh, the techniques um, of uh, urban wandering, whatever you want to call it, which all descend from um, uh, a, a sequence of phenomena. The most recent of which in in the history is is the derive, arguably, but that has its predecessors um, in surrealism and before. Um, but this um, these this this tradition, if you like, has been was revived by people such as myself. I'm ashamed to say, um, as a way of. Um, Rediscovering overlooked value in the city. Yeah. Can I just quote? Can I just quote Patrick on this? Because this is catchy. I think uh, in London now he says psychogeography leads not so much to avant-garde architecture as to gentrification. Yes, and the avant-garde architecture which I was referring to was something was well the only example I'm familiar with uh, of situationist architecture was Constance New Babylon. Um, right, I'm not. I'm not really sure uh, why you're uh, so upset about. I'm not upset. This. I'm yes, just <laughs> no. I, I'm not particularly. Well, I am a bit upset, but um, <laughs> uh, I'm not really. Well, that's not my, my point. Lot. My point isn't that I'm upset. My point is that, that that's something which has perhaps changed since he wrote the book, and it, it because the book, the, this book, is is very intriguingly situated um, at the point of transition. I think that's. I mean, one of the reasons, presumably, why we go on reading it, if, in as much as we do. I mean, to, to be perfectly honest, I haven't read the whole book until this week, since the first time I read it. But I've referred to it from time to time. Well, that's enough. Years since, um, but I've never forgotten about it. Um, uh, uh, you know, and um, it's very difficult to forget about because people are very frequently referring to spectacle this and, and mm. um, uh, you know, the, the um, amazingly um, uh, um, wide influence it's had on our popular culture which we can maybe pull apart later on um, but um, it's one of a, a number of books or other phenomena which, which come at this point before something happens and what happens Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Uh, can be dated... Um, I mean, you, conventionally, it's dated to 1973, uh, but it could possibly have started 10 years earlier. Um, I mean, there are various things. I, I'm always minded to think of Andy Warhol's films um, from the early 60s, which are a kind of a restatement of something. He, Warhol goes back to the beginning of cinema and just does it all over again. And so, I mean, maybe that's something. Uh, again, uh, I mean, uh, Jane Jacobs' book. Um, was the beginning of the end of the kind of urbanism which he's writing about. Um, but don't you think, Debord, I mean, what you refer to as, uh, you know, the kind of museumification plus gentrification of inner urban context, particularly in London, I, don't, I think Debord would have uh, seen that as, uh, uh, you know, the, the spectacle... Oh, yes, certainly, uh, yeah, he would. Commoditising space. He, he would, but that's not the way he writes about territory in the book. That's all I'm saying. It's no. entirely consequent, but it's not, it's not the organisation of territory that he describes. I think we should... Should we open it up? I think we... Um... No. Yes. No. Keep it... <laughs> keep everyone oh, else I, out. I would. <laughs> OK. <laughs> um... Would anyone like to, if, if no one wants to intervene, then uh, we can go back. Would um, could you wait yeah. for Mike? Thank you. Oh, hi. I was wondering, to what extent is the Society of the Spectacle a thing in itself or part of the counterculture going around the world at the time in the 1960s? And so it's a French version of, say, what was going on in America and what was going on elsewhere? No, no, I mean, it's a real phenomenon. It's a real thing. It's not just a, a sort of countercultural trope or a fashion. Uh, it's why uh, it, it, it's a real phenomenon. Can I, I why just, we're all so miserable. I think, I think you can see that. You can see that in the way that when it reached London, nobody really knew what to do. As Are we talking about the, the, book the book or the or the or society? Or He's the talking about the concept. concept. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think we need to clarify. Yeah. You need to sort of italicise your. Uh... Well, I think some people. I mean, some people's response in in Britain to to the sort of thinking that surrounded the situationists and the society, the spectacle, was to uh, bomb the post office tower. You know, and some people's reaction was to take up arms as they saw it against the spectacle uh, and who were they? Uh, the Angry Brigade. Brigade you don't think of them as situ absolutely not no. absolutely not this is I, surely could, a point I could be which, wrong this is surely I, a point at which uh, I mean I, I was not um, very close to any of that but I knew you know I can remember thinking that, that whoever these people were they didn't seem to read very many books <laughs> um, and certainly not this one. Uh, 
Um, I, could, I may be wrong, but I, yeah, I feel I that that's the fair. case. Um, and, um, Is anyone closer to the angry brigade? Not that that's a bad thing. <laughs> um, well, but I mean, you know, as, as Martin Amos said of Tony Blair, he's not a reader. I mean... <laughs> well, he reads Walter Scott, doesn't he? Um, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but the, I mean, the... the um, I mean, you, you can, I think you can see... Well, the, the, on, the, on the other hand, of course, there were people here who were King SI Mark. members. Yeah. No, there were SI members yeah. who were uh, uh, um, quite a few. Um, uh, but I don't recall them being known about, um, except for Alex Trocchi, mm. uh, who wasn't known about as an SI member. Ralph um, Rumney was, I suppose, had a certain... I don't think possibly, he was but he known was, I don't think he was much known. And, and nothing much seemed to happen. I mean, I remember when um, the, there's a, there was a fly poster which arrived in 68, which was put on the cover of our International Times in February 68, and they didn't really know what it was, uh, but they put it on the cover, and then gradually it kind of was clear the word situationist international were mentioned but nothing really happened until much later I don't think when, uh, when the black and red edition mm. came into compendium books and I can't remember when that was but it was it, was, it wasn't quick mm. uh, uh, and in terms of, of a uh, popular culture um, uh, you know there's all this stuff about McLaren and the Sex Pistols which is I mean, you know, never mind factory, never mind hacienda. It just—it seems to be, a, it seems to be that no one very serious ever read it. Almost. I mean, I, I don't want to belittle the significance of the Sex Pistols and McLaren, but it—it it, it kind of seems. I mean, there's not a lot of Hegel in it. Yeah, I, I think yeah. you know until you've seen John Lydon's adverts for Utley Butley, or whatever, <laughs> I don't think you can really feel the full force of the spectacle. <laughs> um, yeah, oh, sorry, sorry. Thanks. Uh, I just want to, uh, to what extent you think the spectacle is a, a representational power? You've talked about uh, digital media at various points, so I wondered how. Um, things like high frequency trading or the kind of invisibility of digital media fits into the notion of the spectacle in terms of its contemporary relevance yeah I mean the spectacle is power actually it's not that's the the temptation to equate it with mediatization or the phenomenon of mediatization the kind of idea that the mat it's the matrix man and we've got it I think that's letting us off the hook. The it's really representation. No, it's not. I mean, it, it, well, I think what Debord says is, it, is it, it's the point at which real power and representational power are the same thing, and that is what is so uh, mind-numbing and and inescapable and ineluctable about the spectacle. Because, and, and that's the it's the point at which real power and representational power have become coextensive that it becomes it's essentially impossible to resist the spectacle anymore I mean in other words that's one of the problems with the society of the spectacle I mean and that's why I was saying earlier on that, that you know it's difficult I mean uh, somebody else may feel differently but it's hard to read the society of the spectacle and feel that anybody is going to organise workers councils off the back of it so 
Oh, Madam. Um, just to respond to your statement about nobody very much of any interest reading the book, The Revolution of Everyday Life, uh, I was part of the women's movement at that time and there was a, a small group of us that were mm, in dialogue with the Angry Brigade at that time and it was very much a book that we were inspired by, uh, particularly in relation to the politics of housework and everyday life and the supermarket and that sort of thing. And our sense that the personal is political, I think, was a version that, that was inspired and supported by. What, sorry, what, what year was that? Um, 67, 68, 69, mm -hmm. probably 69 mm -hmm. onwards. Oh, well, I stand corrected. Yeah. Good, yeah. even though you're <laughs> But that would be Van Agen's revolution yeah. of everyday life. What about yeah. the society of the spectacle? Do you remember that from that period? Uh, no, not so much. It no. Was, well, there was, there was an article written about it in, uh, I can't remember, a sort of publication that was brought out by in context, but yes. you definitely were all, a group of you were reading The Revolution yes. of Everyday yes. Life, which is much more centred, as you say, on the kind of issue of work and domestic work and... So there you go, Patrick. Yes. <laughs> yes, I must admit, I, I didn't know I didn't know that Bennigan was translated that early. I must admit, because... Um, Oh, there it is. Yeah. Yellow pages. Yeah. I mean, black book, but blue pages. But I mean, but it is a very different book. Different. It's to, different to, 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 to this. Yeah. Oh well, I mean, it's almost. It's difficult to imagine them being in the same gang, really, isn't it? Sometimes. Yes and no. I mean, I think there are certain. Uh, they swirl into the same space. Yeah. Uh, Revolution of Everyday Life is, you know, much more lyrical in many ways, much more yes. romanticized, much more, uh, much more, frankly, overblown in some ways. It lacks the sort of tightness and, and precision uh, of a lot of the society of the state. Yes. Uh, but but Do I don't. I, I I certainly think that Van Eijem is is aware of. of of the same phenomenon as the spec uh, as Debord's characterization of the spectacle, mm. I think I think he is limbing in the same kind of thing. Anyway, this man wants to say something. It's only to pick up on what you said about the um, the uh, society of the spectacle as power. Uh, um, beyond when Debord wrote, we're increasingly aware that it is all all powerful, and there is no public forum for resistance. I mean. We, we aren't on the main square in Kiev tonight. We are, we're, we are comfortable. I'm, I'm interested in what private resistance... But aren't we, they on the main square in Kiev because they want to join the spectacle more completely than they are already? Well, <laughs> well it depends They're how many... They're rioting in order to get into the spectacle. Well, it, it depends how many onion skins you want to go into. But what, Only what, one. Well, <laughs> 
What I'm interested in is, 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 is the private resistance. Given that there is no public forum for resistance that we can usefully believe in, I'm interested in those private resistances that, 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 that people could do. Does De Boer have any, have any comment about that, or do you gentlemen have any well, comment well, about Well, Matthew that? made his remarks about reading, but actually you think, I think Patrick's pretty situ in his work, and I think his work is, actually does teach some very, very useful forms of private resistance to the spectacle. And I think you, you, you watch Patrick's films... And they have such a radical effect uh, on your consciousness of, of being in urbanized uh, society now that they are a kind of revolution of everyday life. And, and, I, uh, and I think that, that they are a kind of tactical... I, think, I, I do believe in a subjective revolt against the spectacle. Well, yeah. One of the many advantages of uh, Patrick's films, of course, is that they're a lot more... Watchable than De Boer's films. De Boer made a <laughs> De Boer made a film of the society, the spectacle, which is very interesting. But uh, it's not like watching Patrick Keeler. No. <laughs> Although it is on YouTube. Um, I, so Patrick, what about that question? Well, he's very you? kind. He's very kind to me. This man. You know. um, um, I, I, well, I don't think I d- would make that claim, but I, um, uh, for my own, for myself, but. Um, I'm not sure. Um, I mean, I go back to what he says at the end, really. Um, the critique which blows goes beyond the spectacle must know how to wait. And I spend an awful lot of time waiting, um, waiting for you know the sun to come out or uh, waiting for the tractor to be in the right place where I think it's worth turning the camera on. But um, uh, I mean, obviously, one can resist, but. Um, I'm not quite sure where it gets us all. Um, uh, in general, I mean, it, it, it's uh, uh, and people do resist. But in, I mean, in the increasingly, essay, he doesn't write about that. I mean, I, I don't know that. But what, what did you mean by think. private private resistance? Because I mean, it seemed to me you, know, you were saying that there isn't public resistance, but you also cited that uh, so whenever one gets angry at the at the society we're living in and, and what we're daily confronted by, what can we do which works against it and very, very, very very simply, one can make a collage give yourself half an hour on a Saturday with the, with the, with, with, with the papers cut it up, make a collage, leave it somewhere else for somebody to see get that um, Highland Spring, take off Highland Spring, write a poem stick it on leave it, leave it in a waste paper basket who's going to pick it up, little private odd crack Crackhead things to do. I mean, the society of the spectacle is a collage, effectively, but it's um, but it's but it's deliberately not privatised. It's about you know, it's part of a collective struggle. Isn't it merely a question of refusing? Refusing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's, that's what or doesn't that work? Yes. I mean, I, I don't think De Broad would have objected to that. I mean, Marxist that he was, he undoubtedly cleaved to Marx's view that history is made by the great mass of individuals, and if enough people are making Collages out of Highland Spring labels, then quite clearly Highland Spring are fucked. <laughs> you know, but, but I mean, it's got to be enough people. But you're, you're now you're drinking. I am. I'm, I'm advertising. I'm paid up. The Renault workers in 1968 let, let down the bourgeois intellectual students. Well, there's no faith in the proletariat anymore. So they're at home watching East Enders. 
but in Kiev, people are on the streets, as you say. Yeah, your man doesn't believe it. <laughs> well, they, they seem to be... Uh, most concerned to, to, to you know, get more closely involved with the EU and to align their economy and so on and so forth. But I don't think you know, whether they swing towards Moscow or Brussels, it makes a, a great deal of difference. But it is, I mean, in Debordian terms, it's, it's a, it's a choice, they're, they're faced with a choice between a, the, integra- the uh, concentrated and the diffuse spectacle, mm. aren't they, in mm. a sense, between East and East and West. Well, I, I, I mean, although he goes on and says that we're all part of an integrated spectacle, in fact. Yes, I mean, I think I think that the comments on the society of the spectacle <coughs> were trying to respond to, to his, his anticipation of some form of change in, in the Soviet bloc. Mm. Uh, I, I, I think that what's... I mean, it, without being too kind of sort of boringly pessimistic, it does seem to me that, that Debord and what you're saying correctly anticipates the way that even in as much as people are being completely uh, completely sincere in the way that they protest uh, I mean it seems to me a very Debordian phenomenon the, the rise of uh, interest group politics you know because it's easy to see how uh, single issue politics identity politics can be conceived of as forms of commodification in their own way. I mean, what, what, you know, this kind of fissiparous character to contemporary political discourse clearly does seem to me to be a spectacular phenomenon in that way. Uh, and you know, I, you, you, I don't want to be kind of mean about the proletariat, but on the other hand, it, it, let's admit it is a bit of a sacred cow in our culture for those of us on the left and, and it isn't so much that everybody's watching EastEnders and buying shit uh, it's that there is no and this is where I think Debord fails and failed from the get go there is no uh, meaningful way of forging a power base within a defined sector of society who feel their wage labour being abstracted from them in a particular way you know already kind of too late in 67 or 8 for people to feel that way. Do you think we should have another question? Thank you. Uh, I don't really know much about the uh, society of the spectacle, uh, so I was wondering if any of you could tell me how this thing you've been talking about would impinge on my consciousness from, say, 5 o'clock in the morning when I get up to when I go to bed in the evening. Um, I do have a sense from what you've talked about that it's something that you cannot twist out effectively. I sense that it's something that you can't twist out of. I sense that it's something you can't twist out of effectively. That any effort, that, that any effort to counter it actually becomes part of the whole thing itself so that you're always bound firmly within it. But anyway, comments welcome. Well, I mean, I've known you for many, many years. And actually, you do everything you can to avoid being part of the spectacle. Uh, you know, you've lived in the same place for about 35 years. You tend to walk everywhere. Uh, you don't, uh, you, you know, buy many consumer goods. 
Uh, I think you know full well what the spectacle is and you resile from it on a daily basis. So you're somewhat playing devil's advocate, aren't you? <laughs> you're all right. I mean, I've never... You're about the least spectacular person I know. <laughs> so I don't know why you asked the question. <laughs> Well, he is, isn't he? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it is. Yeah. Is it, or do you want more, Nick? <laughs> <laughs> Are we moving on? Uh, I've got another question. Yeah. Oh. I've always been a little bit sick and jealous that it was the youth of France who managed to bring their capital city to a close for 10 days, two weeks, the year after the board's book was published rather than the Brits. And I've always kind of thought that the way that the workers and students of France appropriated the book, if they had read it, was that they was actually a lot more overtly political than you're giving it credit for. Perhaps they were rebelling against that sort of regal, imperial rule of Debord, and whereas that pragmatic, kind of technocratic, white-heat rule of Wilson in Britain at the time, didn't quite give us the zeal to rebel in the way that the French did. And I just wondered how, what you thought about that. Well, they, they just had, they have revolutions in France. I mean, they, they, they're in the, they had, you know, they've had four or five regimes in the 20th century. They're in the vibe. They like a revolution. They've got all those boulevards for cannons to fire down and they, they know how to build a barricade and they're happy about Molotov cocktails. They've just got a different kind of you know, sense of civil disturbance in that way. I don't think you can take that away from them. They're quite happy. They'll probably do it again soon. You know. Well, yeah. I mean, it, I think you could say that the the role of the mob and the role of, the, of revolutionary moments in English society and in and in English metropolitan culture is rather different. And and you know, you've got to bear in mind we had some major rioting in this city a couple of years ago and it ran up the arterial roads like sepsis uh, I mean I was sit sitting in my house in Stockholm and you could feel it getting closer uh, by the moment so you know you can't altogether take it away from the youth of Britain when it comes to you know, kicking off uh, in quite a, a reasonable and unpleasant fashion so I, I don't know that you need to be you know, that envious do you? <laughs> I was just wondering, uh, how does Debord fit religion in, into the society of the spectacle? Debord feels that the spectacle is religious in character. He sees it as uh, the full articulation of the commodification of the spiritual impulse. So, you know, he thinks that, that we've moved uh, in, you know, in metaphysical terms from worship of an immaterial being that exists independent of ourselves to worship of a material exercise of power over ourselves and it's one of the reasons why he thinks that, that so much inertia uh, is suffered in the face of the spectacle is because it, it taps into our religious impulse that we kind of we, it, is, it is so uh, so you know remember it, it's, a, it's, it's a map that, that completely covers the territory it's it's uh, you know it's, it's very very like the medieval 
cosmonomy, you know, when the, you know, when they, they would see, it's like a sort of Ptolemaic sphere that completely encompasses us in that way. So, uh, it's page 10. <laughs> what, what number's the proposition? 20, 20. Proposition 20. The spectacle is the material reconstruction of the religious illusion. Spectacular technology has not dispelled the religious clouds where men have placed their own powers detached from themselves. It has only tied them to an earthly base. But it's, I think the, he's, also, he's also he's influenced, yeah. he's influenced by the Communist Manifesto. I mean, throughout, it's, yes. it's throughout indebted to the Communist Manifesto. And there's a point in the Communist Manifesto where Marx talks about um, capitalism making the world in its own image. And effectively what he's arguing here, um, and almost using the same biblical rhetoric, is that the spectacle remakes the world in its own, own image. But he also talks... Um, Latterly, Debord about um, the parallels between uh, revolutionary class struggle and millenarianism. Mm. Um, well, and, the other thing he liked was Norman Cohn, of yeah, course, who yeah, was very keen exactly. on. Um, but in, but instead of saying revolutionary struggle, you know, the struggle of small of vanguardist uh, groups on behalf of the proletariat is is like religious sects. He says religious sects were like revolutionary groups so he mm. flips that on its on its head the so religion yeah. is is a model for resistance as well as for the way in which the whole world gets remade in an alienated way the problem as i see i mean what i said in my introduction was that and i don't know what you think about this matthew because you know about i mean in fact i believe you are a marxist so presumably you do have an opinion it's that um <laughs> it's that debord implicitly takes a leninist line on the actual practical business of revolution he seems to think that you know whether it's the situationists or any other that there is, there is a revolutionary vanguard uh, there is a vanguard of the proletariat and you know he's it uh, and since he basically if, if there were two situationists in a room and one of them was debored he'd expel the other one uh, <laughs> you get down to the view that basically he's the vanguard of the revolution which is why he disappears up his own arse yeah yeah he's yeah, the kind of anti-leninist the, vanguard the, the other place where religion <laughs> figures is in chapter five if proposition number well the whole thing really uh, <laughs> time and history which um, I was surprised when I read it recently, um, how little I'd remembered. And I, it was, for me, it was the most enjoyable part of the book. Uh, but he talks about time, um, cyclical time. Yeah, he's very good on time. And festivals, uh, which are not unconnected with religion. Um, uh, and I suppose the reason I recognised this so much better the second time I read it than I did the first time is because in between the two readings I'd read a bit of Henri Lefebvre quite a mm. bit of Henri Lefebvre and, and Lefebvre also talks about um, uh, these matters, festivals especially well, What, what Debord says and he does share it with Lefebvre is the idea that, that the spectacle uh, reinstitutes cyclical time uh, in a the idea is that, or, well, it's a pseudo-cyclical time. The idea being that in in uh, agrarian cultures, 
if you're a peasant, you're tied to the land, you're tied to the harvest, you're tied to, to cyclical time of that form. But in order to keep us disempowered, the spectacle has instituted pseudo-cyclical time, which are things like the Olympics, uh, because in order to, to persuade us that we're all just going round and round and round, while the people who are really empowered are off somewhere else, actually moving forward in time, we're just stuck on this kind of merry-go-round of, you know, the budget announcement and, you know, sports fixtures. He's particularly keen on sports fixtures as evidence. And actually, it does rather ring true for me that there is a sort of... Uh, and it seems to me in line with this kind of terminal moraine of history that the spectacle is piling up. And while I don't think he in any way anticipates the web, I think the web's function, inertial properties on time, so the idea that every single minute event is, exists on the web in some sense, creates a permanent now. Uh, and makes it impossible for us to meaningfully generate new historical movement. And I think that that, the idea that the web is in some way implicated in pseudo-cyclical time, I think is very uh, Debordian and is kind of implicit in Debord. Would you agree with that, Patrick? Yes. Um, I was going to talk about growth, actually. Okay. Um, in that the, the, um, the time that supersedes cyclical time um, is uh, I think it's characterised as the time of the bourgeoisie, which which involves a kind of accumulation. Um, and I wondered whether this whether this has anything to do with the way that um, present day discussion about growth seems to confuse growth with movement. Mm. Mm. In that we're uh, an economy now that doesn't grow is described as being stagnant, which mm. is nonsense, utter nonsense. I, th I think um, we'd better take a couple more questions, sorry. Yes. Um. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I came very late, so uh, apologies if you've addressed this. The, the question of the translation that's been used... Uh, which I understand to be Freddie Perlman's translation. The, uh, the is that is that right? I mean, I mean uh, absolutely no. Black and red. Well, it's black and red. Okay, yeah. so it is Freddie Perlman's translation, which is uh, acknowledged to be wildly uh, inaccurate. <laughs> for, for, for very, I, I mean, often for good reasons. It was uh, the 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 the, the, the approved. Not that we should necessarily take stopped by that, but Donald Nicholson Smith's translation, I think few would deny has superseded that, and um, Perlman did it, uh, I mean it, uh, the early quick translations were it was a kind of text to combat, but I, I, I found it ironic that uh, Patrick Keeler <laughs> felt he had to quote Freddie Perlman accurately when uh, it really is not there is, there is a translation um, which uh, I think is, is a better version of... Well, could of could you book. enlighten us on what the particular improvements are on the later translation? How much time have you got? <laughs> I, 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 well, I don't live in pseudo-cyclical time, so I've got as much time as you've got. Something similar happened with the revolution of everyday life, didn't it? Which um, I've been quoting 
ever since I started quoting, I've been quoting a bit of Christopher Gray's translation, which is, is not very close to the original, uh, and was at, in the same way superseded by Donald Nicholson Smith's translation. Well, he, um, and, then, and then Donald retranslated his own translation, which I think is a first in, in out of uh, sort of uh, homage to what he regarded was a, a, a classic a classic book. Um, again, the same, the same question of things that are done in a hurry um, early on. But um, are, the, are the problems with the, the earlier translation inac actual inaccuracies? Are they... Uh yes, I think there's both things. There are infelicities. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, some of that is obviously style, style and so on. But yes, there, there are very serious... I, I will... I mean, I will send you a, a list... I mean, uh, there, there, the I mean, there, yeah, there are there are mistakes, but then there's also decisions like I think to translate detournement as diversion, which. We've lost you. We can't hear you now. Um, I, I was talking about the the latter, really. Just yeah. you know that that it's it's worth people knowing that. Uh, it's not to say, I'm sure you know your introduction is very will be very interesting anyway. But I just thought people should know that Nicholson Smith's translation is out there, mm. um, and um, yeah, that's really just want to say. Time for maybe two more. Someone at the front. Okay, yeah, there, then there. I'm glad that I could speak, but. Um, I didn't know why I was coming here, actually. Um, one, one of the... Uh, if, only, if only... It's a bit like a, read, a Bible reading here, actually, um, where you read the Bible and discuss it. But what I find interesting is that uh, hearing... For years, I've always used the word Guy Debord and not what you, you used it. And the same as uh, Raoul... Raoul... Vigen. I mean, uh, he used a different spent, uh, pronunciation of his word, you see. And that's why I find the, tra the translation here is an interesting one, because well, um, I, I, I find, I I find, hang on, hang on, I find I his books unreadable half the time. Raoul Vignajam, I think, exactly. is how it's actually pronounced, but I don't know, maybe somebody, I mean, these Belgian names are pretty torturous. I don't mind. I mean... I'd rather, I mean, whatever. Two things, right? Just two things. But, but, um, but your point about the Bible reading, I mean, Bible reading's cool, man. Yes, that's right. Yeah, I mean, it, that's why I came here. Yeah. <laughs> there, there are two films. The, 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 the film um, Dat Nada by uh, Chabrol always reminded me of uh, his books. And the other thing is um, you refer to council, council work... Works councils. Workers councils. Yeah, what I find them interesting is that they never seem to do any work. They were sitting around uh, whatever it is that they do. The people who work, the, uh, that's what I couldn't quite understand. What percentage of the time that the work councils actually did work as opposed to working as uh, work councils? I mean, but a full, -time, a full time trade union official doesn't do any work on that criterion. And. Um, <laughs> uh, one, one more, um, possibly two more. Yeah. 
Thanks. I teach this book, and when I do, um, my students tend to find that what's most compelling about it is what is most troubling about it. And that is, by extending the notion of you know, Marxist theory of commodity society to the spectacle, it becomes so ubiquitous, so omnipotent, that they see no form of possibly resisting it. But we exist in a post-crash, post-occupy moment when the dividing lines in economic interests have never been more clear and the starkness of those divisions have never been more clear. So I think part of what's problematic about the book is that it tends to assume that the spectacle is uh, even in its effects across the entirety of the population, whereas you might argue that it's in fact radically uneven, that the spectacle is experienced entirely differently from a peripheral point in the world economy than it is in the center, in the core. Any thoughts about that? Yes. That's a good point. Um, in some ways, I think that the English response to the 2007-8 financial crash is quite English and it, I think there are strong parallels with the English response to the financial crash of the late 20s uh, and an ability, uh, an elasticity in English society and an ability essentially to uh, be unintegrated when it suits English culture and to hive off unemployment and uh, economic disempowerment, usually shipping it up north, uh, was a characteristic of the early 1930s as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm not so sure that this isn't a spectacular effect so much as a, you know, a local and national effect within the, the English economy. Debord's quite clear as well, as you know, that the spectacle's uneven in that way. I mean, he thinks that people, that money and power can liberate you from the spectacle. He thinks that powerful and rich people don't, for example, live in pseudo-cyclical time, that they get to have proper lives, and that that's part of what makes the spectacle commodify them. They become pictures of people living authentic lives. Uh, he's in, he seems a bit ambiguous about how authentic their lives are, but he certainly thinks that that's part of... He's very good on celebrity culture and, and why it's necessary for the spectacle to produce celebrities, but what exactly are you saying? Are you saying that, it, that there are possible centres of resistance to the spectacle where the spectacle is spread more thinly? Uh, and in which case, where exactly is it spread more thinly? I mean, is it in, as it were, peripheral economies or it is, is it in certain class or economic sectors of the society that you think it doesn't obtain? Well, both, presumably. But the idea that you know, the, the spectacle effectively renders us as a, a kind of uniform audience, mm. um, all sort of experiencing the channel in the same way, seems to me, you know, problematic. It's, mm. it's a troubling aspect of the, of the theory, which is, which is powerful precisely because it ex- becomes so all-encompassing, so uniform. Do you think that the power of the theory is, you know, somewhat mind-bogglingly simply is a, a very, very powerful heuristic and then one of the ways is, is, is one of its, our problems are getting around it is its power as a heuristic because things like, if you say for example well, 
people currently um, bombing in Fallujah, they're, they're not involved in the spectacle in quite the same way. They really are bombing, and they really are doing it for reasons of, you know, immediate proximate power, uh, you know, uh, partisan and, and, and uh, sectional differences of one kind or another. I mean, would you say that those are non-spectacular actions, or would you say that the spectacle's capacity to repackage that as kind of outsourced violence for consumption through news media and the developed economy is the real phenomenon. Because I think that troubled the board. Well, as I well. take it that was your point about the the spectalization of resistance mm. of dissent is that it it we, you know it would be hard to argue that Al Qaeda is not spectacular in mm. its methodology and its awareness, right? Um, but even at the level of just you know the the, the wretched of the earth. Um, they still are now channeled through um, <coughs> the spectacle in ways that we're not necessarily cognizant of. We, d we don't necessarily, um, you know, experience it in the in the way that they do. Uh, I think one of the problems that we face here and in other countries is that we are, to a great extent, ignorant as to the source of our own prosperity. Um, and that has a lot to do with this. Well, I'm, I'm absolutely confident that our prosperity is going to be over fairly soon, if that will cheer you up at all. Well, no, it doesn't cheer me up. It, but it, it, it does, um, it leads on to the thought that, um, that, that in, if that's the case, then presumably the spectacle contains the, the seeds of its own destruction, which yeah. he doesn't seem to say. He doesn't seem to say that, does he? No. Well, he does. He does. In the, in the preface, he says that the fall of the Berlin Wall is the herald of the collapse of. In the, in the comments. Yeah, no, in the, in the third preface in 92. In 92. Uh, after the, the wall comes down. He says just think about the a great war comes. I think we should probably leave it there. Um, so thank you very much, all of you, and Will and Patrick. Um, They'll be signing copies of uh, this book, presumably other books, and uh, in Patrick's case, of uh, uh, the view from the train. So stick around and have a uh, have a drink, and uh, come up. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.